Okay, chapter 13 is patient assessment. <clears throat> this is another pretty long chapter that we're not going to get through today. So an introduction to patient assessment. All decisions about patient care and transport are based on an accurate, thorough patient assessment. That patient assessment is kind of our foundation. In order for us to get a full, clear picture about what's going on with that patient, that's going to lead us to our field diagnosis, that's going to end and then dictate the treatment that we provide, we have to do a good patient assessment. We do a bad patient assessment that's going to translate into bad patient care. Steps of the uh, patient assessment process includes the scene size up. That's what chapter 12 was all about was just the scene size up. From there, we move into the primary assessment, the secondary assessment, and then the reassessment process. So again, this is the kind of the algorithm for patient assessment. We start off with our scene size up. Then we move into our primary assessment. It's the secondary assessment is what's going to vary pretty dramatically depending on what type of patient we are dealing with, whether it's a trauma or a medical. We also break it down further into trauma about how critical the patient is from that trauma or how significant the mechanism of injury is. For medical, it's going to be dependent on whether the patient's conscious or unconscious. Scene size up, primary assessment are going to be the same regardless of what type of patient we're dealing with. And then that last step is going to be the reassessment process. So review of the scene size up, dynamic process that we continue throughout the entirety of the call. There are operational things like requesting additional resources and patient care aspects, determining nature of illness, medical mechanism of injury. So MOI or NOI, determining the number of patients, is the beginning of the patient assessment process. And the steps of the scene size up is to take standard precautions, evaluate the scenes for hazards, ensure scene safety, determine the nature of illness or the mechanism of injury, depending on medical versus trauma, determine how many patients we are dealing with, and ascertain the need for additional resources. And again, chapter 12, we covered this. So moving on, the next part of the, of the patient assessment process, the, the next step is the primary assessment. Again, the primary assessment, it does not matter, matter if we're doing a medical assessment or a trauma patient. Primary assessments can be basically the same. So a primary assessment, again, is conducted on every single patient we run on. Three purposes. If we didn't determine this in the scene size up, we're going to try to determine the nature of problem. What's going on with the patient? The main purpose of a primary assessment is to identify and manage immediate threats to life. That's all we're really focused on on our primary assessment is does this patient have something going on that's going to kill him very quickly? And if so, we're uncorrected. And the last purpose of it is to establish priorities for treatment and transport. Based on what we find during this primary assessment, we're going to classify this patient as a high priority patient or low priority, stable basically versus unstable. And then from there, we're going to make the determination, does this patient need to be loaded rapidly, rapidly transported to the hospital, or is this patient to the point stable enough 
where we can spend more time on scene, perform more care and treatment on scene, and then kind of take our time to get to the hospital. Steps of the primary assessment. Steps of the primary assessment is, is ABCs. That's the main thing that we focus on with our primary assessment. But it's going to start before that as well. As soon as we lay eyes on our patient, we're going to start trying to form a general impression on the patient. And we're going to talk about these individually as well. Also going to assess the level of consciousness or their mental status. Now we move into the ABCs. And again, this is where the majority of any treatment that we're going to provide during the primary assessment is going to be in relation to the ABCs. So ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. So we're going to check the airway, make sure that the airway is open and paid. Once we know the airway is open, now we're going to move on and we're going to assess for breathing. Determine is the patient breathing adequately or not on their own. Once we make that determination, part of the B is also determining the need for oxygenation. Patients breathing adequately on their own, but now they may also need supplemental O2. And then the C, circulation. Again, based on everything we find above this point, based on their general impression, our LOC and our ABCs, now we're establishing those patient priorities. Yeah, patient looks like crap. It's very critical. We need to load and get them to the hospital. So any life-threatening conditions identified in the primary assessment is immediately treated before moving to the next portion of the primary assessment. So again, we're going to do it in order, A, B, C. If the airway is not open and patent, we can't really even assess breathing to ensure that breathing is adequate until we ensure that airway is open. So first thing we look at is that airway. Make sure the airway is open. If the airway is not open, we're going to take steps to open it. Once we know the airway is taken care of, now we move on to assess breathing. Again, we're going to ensure that they're breathing adequately on their own before we move on to assess circulation. There is the algorithm on how to perform a primary assessment. I'm definitely not going to read that to you because this is what the chapter is about. That is there for your reference. And most of it's logical. There's a problem with the ABCs. We fix it before we move on. So again, this first step is we're going to form a general impression of the patient. We develop a general impression of the patient's condition as you approach and determine if they are stable or unstable. So we do this without talking to, touching, or anything like that. We make a general impression as soon as we lay eyes on the patient. We start forming this general impression. A patient that looks sick or looks pretty bad off probably is sick or pretty bad off. So you can tell a lot from a patient just by looking at it. Again, everybody in this room, I can look out and see your face, see your body posture and actions. I know everybody in here is pretty stable. Some of y'all probably bored out of your minds, but you're at least stable. We're also going to determine the chief complaint. We can start asking those questions during that primary assessment. Hey, conscious patient. Hey, my name is Mason Powers and paramedic at the UMC. What's going on today? While we're doing this as well, it's part of the scene size up as well, but we're also observing the environment, looking for any clues around the patient, inside the residence, the vehicles that are crashed, et cetera, to give us a better understanding of what's going on. So table 13-1 in your book, form a general impression. And again, we're doing this without talking to the patient for the most part. 
So we're going to estimate the patient's age just by looking at them. We know, even with very little medical knowledge, that elderly patients are going to be more prone to certain medical conditions than younger patients are, et cetera. We're dealing with a 13-year-old. We're not worried about cardiac-related history or heart attacks. We're dealing with a 55-year-old. Now we are starting to worry. 55-year-old sitting there holding his chest like this, your instant thought should be, hey, this is probably cardiac-related or at least chest pain. Note the patient's sex. Try to determine whether the patient is a medical patient or a trauma patient. Again, oftentimes it's very obvious. Other times it may not be obvious what exactly is going on. Obtain chief complaint. And then if we see anything immediate life-threatening, we can take immediate actions to treat those. So again, forming a general impression. We walk in. And we see this person right here, uh, Chance. What's your general impression on this patient? That she's older, but seems to be in pretty good health since she's able to stand up and come to the door. Very good. So we have a older patient, late 50s, early 60s, probably everybody in agreement with that. I'm not the best at estimating age. So do we think she's female? Since because of her age, do you think we're really too much worried about the possibility of pregnancy? Probably not. I mean, it's possibly still possible, but again, traditionally, we're not. Other than that, what else are we looking? She's meeting us at the front door. So she's up ambulating or walking around on scene. She's making eye contact with this. So just like Chan said, looking at her from like this, I'm not too worried or panicked. I think she's going to be pretty stable during our assessment. Jolie, patient exhibiting, I'm sorry, look at our general impression on this patient. What do we think about this guy? Um, he's older and he might not be in as good health because he's sitting down. Yeah, so there's an inhaler, so he might have uh, lung issues. Correct. Correct. All very good part. The other thing I want you to note, is I think this might be the first picture that we're seeing of it. This patient's in what we refer to as that tripod position. So I think I referred to this earlier. Sitting down with his arms on a solid surface, in this case his knees, and he's leaning forward. All of that, that tripod position typically indicates that the patient is having a hard time breathing. Just like Jolie said, very good. We notice an inhaler sitting on the table. So that's telling us, yes, he's probably having trouble breathing. Not only that, he probably has a history, a respiratory history in the past. Also, his lips looked pursed a little bit, which is also an indication of respiratory distress as well. So very good. Nico, general impression of this patient? He's hurt. He's a little older. Uh, seems like he got hurt from that uh, grinder. Probably so. So by looking at this, we know right off the bat this is trauma, right? Almost undoubtedly this is going to be a trauma. Hard to tell. It is just a picture, but he doesn't really look too oriented to me. He doesn't really look like he's looking around or making good eye contact with it. He kind of looks a little bit out of it. And again, like he said, it's obvious trauma. So we do have some bleeding coming out of his upper leg there, right there. And again, that's probably the culprit of it is that angle grinder. So again, very good. Based on this, and again, it's hard to tell, my first impression just by looking at him and his face, he's probably not going to be the most stable. He's 
bleeding. Nobody's applying pressure to it. And to, again, to me, his face, he, he kind of looks out of it. <clears throat> General impression of this guy, uh, Cassie. Um, he's an older guy who's laying on the floor, probably unresponsive. Okay, very good. To me, I mean, again, it's a steal, so it's hard to see how the responsive level. He looks like he's laying on his side with his arm over his abdomen. So if he is conscious, first thing I'm going to start thinking about is probably going to be abdominal pain of some type as well. Not only that, is this medical or trauma? You know, it's probably medical, but we really can't roll out a trauma. Maybe he fell on the floor as well. So again, it may not be completely obvious, at least initially. So part of our primary assessment as well, forming the general impression, as soon as we get at patient's side, one thing that we got to start considering is if this is a trauma where we are worried about spine motion or spinal injury, we need to immediately provide spinal precautions on this patient. And we're going to talk much more about this once we get into spinal injuries. But we need to make sure that we're protecting that spine from additional injury if we do suspect it to be injured. So one way we can do this is by self-restriction. If our patient is conscious and is following our commands, instead of tying somebody up, holding their head, at least initially, we're going to tell them, hey, buddy, don't move. We are going to instruct the patient to keep their head, neck, and their umbilicus, their belly button, all in alignment and not to move their head or neck. We want them to sit as still as possible. If no further evidence of injury is noted after we get done with our assessment, we check that spine. If we can clear that spine, at that point, we no longer have to worry about self-restriction. We'll place the patient on the stretcher transport like normal. If there is evidence that the patient has a spinal injury, or more than likely, we can't really rule it out because we have an unresponsive patient, distracting injuries, so forth. At the very minimum, we're going to apply a C-collar to the patient and then place the patient on a stretcher or mobilize on a backboard or vacuum mattress for transport. Spinal precautions has dramatically changed throughout the years. So follow your local protocol. Some EMS services have you fully immobilize a patient on a long spine board with CIDs and then put your backboard on the stretcher. Studies have shown that it is not beneficial, so some EMS services have moved away from it. UMCMS, this area in SPIMS, we do not put patients on backboards for transport anymore. So our protocol is C-collar, lay them on the stretcher with the head slightly elevated at a semi-fowler's position, and then transport the patient to the hospital. So again, just follow your protocols. But again, holding that initial holding spinal precautions or maintaining or establishing spinal precautions needs to start during the primary assessment. So this patient right here, Cassidy. What do we? What's her general impression of this young lady right here? I uh, hope you know. She's pretty old. Yeah. Looks like she fell. Um, she's kind of holding on to her side, I guess. I maybe or maybe I think she's. To me, it looks more like she's resting on her arm, holding her upper body up. Very good. Is she alert? Somewhat, yeah. She, she's sitting up, holding her own body weight up. I would just, again, picture, but I would assume that would be she's alert. Not necessarily oriented, she can be confused. 
But is this medical or trauma? This case is going to be very hard for us to determine. Did she just get lightheaded and sat down on the ground because she felt like she was about to pass out and fall or her chest started hurting? Or did she fall and break her ankle? So again, some situations, at least immediately, it's not going to be clear whether we're dealing with the medical or a trauma. And not only that, we could be dealing with both. Patient got lightheaded and dizzy, tripped, now hurt her ankle, so it's medical and trauma. We're worried about that ankle injury, but we're also worrying about the underlying reason she fell, which was getting lightheaded and dizzy. Also, pay attention to any indications of a patient that we have on scene as well, looking for clues. So in this case, and 12 leads are not done during the primary assessment, but this is a good example of things that we may see on a patient. So in this case, the EMS crew took off the patient's shirt in order to run a 12 lead EKG on the patient. When they took off a shirt, you notice this large scar running right down the center of his chest. So that's telling me right there that he's had coronary artery bypass, uh, bypass surgery previously which tells me this patient's going to have a pretty extensive cardiac history. So if this patient's complaining of chest pain, I'm heavily leaning to, yeah, this is probably truly cardiac in nature as opposed to something else causing that chest pain. So again, pay attention to these, these clues. He also has, looks like scars right here as well. But check that upper chest. See if they have things like a pacemaker. A lot of patients that have had that much work done probably are going to have a pacemaker at the bare minimum an internal defibrillator. So again, just pay attention to clues that we see on scene. So determine whether the patient is injured or ill. Again, we're trying to determine, is this a medical or trauma? Again, oftentimes we can tell by just looking at the patient what's wrong. So injured. Again, this is a trauma patient. So penetrating trauma is a force that pierces the skin and body tissues. So gunshot wounds, those are penetrating injuries. Stabbings, those are penetrating injuries. Uh, again, anything that penetrates or pierces into the skin. Blunt force trauma is caused by a force that impacts the body but does not penetrate it. Somebody gets struck in the chest with a baseball bat, that would be blunt force trauma. MVCs, vast majority of the time the injuries we see from MVCs are all gonna be blunt force trauma. Head hits the steering wheel, chest hits the steering wheel, so forth. And again, the environment may offer clues that the patient is suffering from a medical problem as well. So again, trying to determine, is this medical or trauma? Obviously, looking at this patient, he has an external wound, so pretty obvious it's going to be a traumatic injury. So again, oftentimes it is pretty obvious. To me, he looks like it's Hard to tell, but possibly penetrating injury, uh, something that looks like he's got a foreign body into the abdomen. Very common when you see patients with abdominal injuries or even abdominal pain, they'll be kind of in this fetal position with their legs drawn in and their upper body kind of curled around it. The reason is that tends to help with that pain. We're releasing some of the tension on those abdominal muscles, and it's going to just make it feel better. So in this case, cold, do we think this is medical or trauma? Uh, medical. He's yeah. still laying in bed. Right. No external wounds or anything. Pretty certain this one's going to be medical. Now, we can't know for sure until we do a more thorough assessment and ask questions. 
but just right off the top of my head, I'm 99% sure this is probably going to be a medical patient. So we're also going to try to obtain the chief complaint. Again, the chief complaint is why EMS was called to the scene. And don't always assume that the original complaint is the true chief complaint. Chief complaint, again, is what's going on that made the patient call 911 at this time. Many times trauma patients are going to have an observable chief complaint. They're half their arms missing because it was crushed. If we're dealing with medical patients, though, that in order to obtain that chief complaint, it's going to require more than likely, it's going to require us talking to them. <clears throat> so immediate life threats that may be obvious during the general impression. And if we find these during our general impression, we can immediately take actions to correct them. An airway that is compromised by blood, vomitus, secretions, the tongue, bone, teeth, or other substances or objects. If we walk up and we notice from a distance that, hey, something's going on, he's obviously got gargling respirations, or we notice his face is covered in blood and we feel that his mouth is filling up with blood quickly as well, including that airway, take immediate actions to correct it. Go up there, quickly try to clear and open that airway. If the patients have immediate or obvious open penetrating wounds to the chest, we are going to take immediate actions to correct those as well. Remember, we talked about an intact thoracic cavity is needed in order for breathing to occur or ventilation to occur uh, uh, effectively. So during part of our breathing assessment, we're also looking at the chest as well. Penetrating chest can dramatically uh, hurt or damage the patient's efforts to breathe. So if we notice obvious, obvious open chest wounds, we'll take immediate actions to go to correct it. Paradoxical chest movement, which is movement that's moving in the opposite direction of the rest of the chest. Again, that's an indication of a flail segment. That's the telltale sign of a flail segment. You see a test question, or we see this in real life, patients having paradoxical chest wall movement. It's a flail chest. It's immediate life threat. Take actions to correct it when we find it. Any obvious major bleeding. So if we walk up and if we see the patient is having spurting blood out of his leg, we can immediately address that as we approach the scene. As soon as we find it, we can take steps to correct it. If the patient is unresponsive, no breathing, or they're having agonal gasps, again, we're going to open the airway, start ventilating the patient. So cardiac arrest must be recognized immediately if the patient is in cardiac arrest. Again, if the patient is in cardiac arrest, we are going to follow the assessment procedures that was laid out in the BLS course. So we're going to check airway, check or check breathing, check pulse. No breathing, no pulse. We immediately start with chest compressions in that case. So chest compressions first. Then we move to open the airway and ventilations and applying an AED as soon as possible is going to be important as well. Again, 
if we suspect that the patient has a spinal injuries, as soon as we approach that patient, we need to provide spine motion restrictions. We're going to establish manual inline stabilization. So we walk up from a major car crash where the patient was ejected and the patient's unresponsive. Me and my partner walk up. I'm immediate, I'm in, I'm the lead. I'm immediately going to have my partner hold C-spine to protect that neck and head. So we're going to place one hand on each side of the patient's head to prevent that neck from moving side to side and up and down. If the patient wasn't in an inline neutral position, so patient's laying supine, but their head's rotated to the side. When we get on scene and we're holding inline stabilization, we're actually going to rotate that head back into that neutral inline position. And we're going to maintain manual stabilization until we finish our spinal precautions protocol, whether that's fully immobilized on a long spine board or putting them on the stretcher and strapping them down. Again, in that case, follow protocols. Again, there's an example of providing inline stabilization. Again, that's the first thing that we do for major traumas that are unresponsive. As soon as we approach, we get at patient's side. One of us has to hold C-spine while the other one begins their assessment. So again, just one hand on each side, keep the head and neck neutral and in line. Again, if the patient's conscious and following commands, we can use self-restrictions. Just tell the patient not to move. Keep everything in line. Keep his toes in line with his nose and navel. And instruct the patient not to move his head and neck until we give them further instructions on what to do next. And some protocols may not allow you to do self-restriction. So again, in these cases, especially with spinal precautions, it's going to wildly, it's going to vary wildly from service to service. So we need to position our patient for assessment as well. We're checking airway, breathing, and circulation. So if our patient is laying prone, face down, it's going to be very difficult for us to assess airway and breathing. So we need to position ourselves or position that patient for assessment. So if they're prone, we're gonna go ahead and log roll them onto their back to do a good thorough assessment. Log roll the patient after quickly checking the posterior body. While he's already on his front and his back's exposed, quickly assess the back. Checking the back should be extremely quick. Run your hand on the back, make sure nothing's obvious major, log roll them onto their back in order for us to start assessing ABCs. And if we are worried about trauma, we'll do this maintaining spinal precautions, inline stabilization while we log roll it. So after we get our general impression, if it is a major trauma where we're worried about spinal injuries, we're gonna go ahead and maintain inline stabilization. From there, if it's not obvious, we may be doing this at the same time, we're also going to be assessing their LOC, level of consciousness or mental status. And we quickly assess the level of responsiveness using the APU mnemonic. Again, there's another mnemonic, so you better know what it means. And we're going to break these down individually as well. So APU, what's it stand for? The A stands for alert. The V stands for they respond to a verbal stimulus. P means they respond to a painful stimulus. And the U means that they are completely unresponsive. 
again, this may be very quick, same time we're getting our general impression. That first picture we saw of the old lady standing at the door, she's obviously alert. So again, we're gonna break these down individually. The A stands for alert. If they're alert at some point, may not be immediate, but we're also gonna check for orientation as well. There is a difference between alertness and orientation. So if the patient's eyes are open, he can speak as you approach him, we, we know for sure that the patient is alert. They're interacting, they're looking around, they're talking or speaking, we know the patient's alert. And again, a patient can be alert, but at the same time, they can be agitated, they can be confused, they can be disoriented. Again, at least right now, we're classifying them on the AFPU mnemonic. So if that patient is not alert when we get on scene, now we're going to move on to assess to see if they will respond to verbal stimulus. <clears throat> so patients not doesn't have eyes open, they're not looking around, they're not moving, they're not alert. So now we're going to move on to assess to see if they respond to a verbal stimulus. So verbal stimuli, just what it sounds like. We're going to provide verbal stimulus. We're going to shout their name. We're going to say, hey, open your eyes or something to that effect to see if we can get any type of response from the patient. So the patient opens his eyes, responds or attempts to respond to your voice. And they don't necessarily have to speak. Opening their eyes would be enough for them to respond to a verbal stimulus. But if they don't speak, see if they'll follow our commands. Hey, can you grab my hand? Can you squeeze my hand? If they don't respond to a painful stimulus, we shout, we say, hey, open your eyes for us. They don't respond. Now we're moving on to assess, to check, to see if they'll respond to painful stimulus. So how do we inflict painful stimuli to our patients? There are different methods that we can use. A couple of the most common, the trapezius or the armpit pinch are very common methods that we use to check for responsiveness to painful stimulus. Trapezius pinch, we're describing that muscle right in between the neck and the shoulder, and we're squeezing it to see if they get any type of response. Armpit pinch, that front part of that armpit, we're going to grab that, squeeze the hell out of it to see if we get any type of response. Superorbital pressure, there's a picture of this coming up. We don't do this one too frequently. Some, patients, some crew members might like it as one, I've never really used it. Another very common one though is a sternal rub. Sternal rub, you get the, the uh, knuckles of a wrist and you are dragging them across the patient's sternum. And it's not nice and gentle. We're digging those in there. Earlobe pinch, just what it sounds like. Nail bed pressure is another very common one where we squeeze on their nail beds. It's hard to do much pressure with just your fingers, but if we get a pin, put a hard object like your pin or pin light on the back of their fingernail bed and squeeze that, or if you really want to be mean and inflict a lot of pain, you can use the tip of your pin or tell, put it right under the finger and squeeze really hard like that as well. Armpit pinch, we already talked about. We can also pinch the webbing between the thumb and the index finger as well. 
our pinched finger, toe, hand, or foot. We don't do things like purple nurples or anything like that. If you do it, definitely don't document. That's what we did. I've read run reports with somebody documented that in that language as well. So again, trapezius pinch. Superorbital pressure. Again, it's not one of my favorites, but it is an option. There's that sternal rub. Again, we're just dragging the knuckles of our chest deep into the patient's sternum, earlobe. So again, we're inflicting this painful stimulus to them, and we're going to see how or what type of response we're going to have. There's different types of responses to a painful stimuli a patient can have. We're going to classify those responses as either purposeful movement or non-purposeful movement. So movement towards the painful stimulus as if to push it away is purposeful movement. If I start rubbing that patient's chest and they start moving their arms towards my hand in the effort, or it seems like they're trying to push that away, that's purposeful movement. That's good. So what we, if, if they're going to be this altered, at least they're responding per, to with purposeful movement, sorry. If they, we are doing sternal rub, trapezius pinch, and all they're trying to do is to kind of pull away from it, they are, we would classify that as withdrawing from pain. And the dangerous types of responses that indicates bad things are going on, patients having some serious issues in the brain anyway, are posturing whether flexion or extension posturing, again, those are abnormal responses and that indicates brain damage. Can be from medical, can be brain anoxia, <clears throat> but if we see posturing, that's a bad sign. Again, it indicates the brain's involved. So there's two types of posturing. There's flexion and extension or decorticate and decerebate posturing. So we're gonna talk about decorticate posturing first. Patient arches their back, flexes their arms inward towards the chest, indicating a serious head injury. So the legs are going to always be, there's going to be extended. Legs don't bend or regardless of decorative or decerebate. Arm or legs are always going to be extended. <clears throat> so again, with decorticate, difference is what, where the arms are going to be. With decorticate, the arms are flexed inward. Easiest way that I remember decorticate versus decerebate, decorticate core, the arms are towards the core, is how I always remember the difference. So decorticate posturing, the arms are flexed towards the core. Again, decerebate posturing, legs are doing the same, arms are pretty much, I mean, the back's pretty much doing the same as well, but the arms are extended, locked out. <clears throat> There are some problems that are can be uh, there can be some problems with painful stimulus, and basically what it boils down to, you can lose peripheral stimuli and and still have central stimulus. So say we do a fingernail bit pinch first, and we get absolutely no response. That's going to be peripheral stimuli. So if they don't respond to fingernail bed pressure, we also need to go back and check for central painful stimulus response as well. So peripheral stimuli may reach the spinal cord, but not the brain, meaning they won't get 
response. So if we've tried all that, they're obviously not alert when we get there. We shout, try to see if they respond to verbal stimulus. They don't. We inflict painful stimulus on them. We get absolutely no response from painful stimulus. They're classified as unresponsive or a U on the AFPU. Patient who does not respond to verbal or painful stimulus, again, we are classified them as being unresponsive. Unresponsive patients are always going to be a high priority for emergency care and transport. We, they, we worry about them protecting their own airway. Something's bad enough is going on in their body that's causing them to be unresponsive as well. So we always consider unresponsive patients a high priority. And when I say high priority, I don't necessarily mean we're going to transport them rapidly, lights and sirens to the hospital. That's just something to keep in the back of our mind. We do need to get into the hospital probably quicker than a stable conscious patient. Unresponsiveness to verbal or painful stimuli can indicate the patient's inability to maintain their own airway. And again, that's going to be a big concern is making sure they're maintaining it, their own airway. So we're going to document this level of responsiveness and our run reports and typically where we assess vital signs at in that flow chart, there's going to be a place for us to document the AFPU mnemonic. So make sure that we document it. Again, just like with baseline vital signs, this is our baseline LOC. If there's changes in patient's condition, we're going to compare that to this baseline. And again, we document it as AVP or U. And again, it's typically in a flow chart where we assess vital signs or do our assessments at. And again, the AVPU checks perform to quickly establish a baseline for mental status and more, a more detailed neurological exam will be performed later in the assessment process. So again, initially, all we care about is AVPU. Not so much worried about confusion disorientation, or we're probably, we may note it, note it right now, but we're going to dive deeper into it just a little bit later. So again, we've got our general impression. We've checked our responsiveness, our LOC. Now we move on to those ABCs that we've talked about. So again, first is gonna be the airway. We're gonna determine that airway status. Anytime we have an occluded airway, that's an immediate threat to life. Again, it doesn't matter what else we do for the patient. If that airway is not open, patient's gonna die quickly. So as soon as we note that airway is occluded, we're taking immediate action to correct it, whether it's head tilt, chin lift, jaw thrust, OPAs, NPAs, or uh, suctioning, whatever the case may be. Again, patient who is alert and talking without signs of distress, we know their airway is going to be paid. Again, I can look at everyone in here and know your airway, breathing and circulation are all really good right off the bat. So again, depending on the situation, your primary assessment take, may take less than a minute. Again, it's just going to be very situational for that patient. So again, patient alert talking to us. We know their airway is clear. So airway status and response to patient. Again, typically it's very easy for us to determine. Some things that we do need to be on the lookout for for a conscious alert patient that may indicate airway compromise. Again, strider, that harsh high pitch sound typically heard during inspiration, typically indicates swelling in the larynx. If they're having difficulty speaking, talking in two or three word sentences, or their voice sounds extremely hoarse, 
gasping breaths, or if they're conscious, completely not speaking, that may indicate a complete airway occlusion by choking or by swelling, something along those lines. Again, most of the time for a conscious patient, we can get ABCs really quick. It's when we have altered patients or unresponsive patients that it's going to be, it's going to take a little bit more time. We have to pay a little bit more close attention to that airway status. So unresponsive or severely altered. Again, these patients, there's a very high risk of airway compromise. So again, make sure we're doing a good thorough assessment of that airway. Make sure that airway is open. If it's not open, again, take actions immediately to open it. So again, how we open a patient's airway. Techniques include, again, those manual airway maneuvers, head tilt, chin lift, jaw thrust maneuver if we suspect a spinal injury. If there's fluid in the airway, blood, vomitus, secretions, whatever the case may be, suctioning the airway, Finger sweeps if it's larger items. Now we have our airway adjuncts, OPAs, NPAs. If the patient's choking, we can do abdominal thrusts, the Heimlich maneuver. And again, just positioning the patient is going to help, can help and maintain that airway. Putting them in that lateral recumbent position is going to help ensure a clear open airway. So indications that the patient may have a partial airway obstruction. Again, they're still moving some air, but there is a partial obstruction. Again, the main, the main cause of a partial airway obstruction in an unconscious adult patient is the tongue. And they're going to present with snoring respiration. Again, that indicates blockage of the airway by the tongue. How do we correct it? Simple. Manual maneuvers, head tilt, chin lift, jaw thrust, and then we can supplement that move with those airway adjuncts, either an OPA or an NPA. All of those are designed to keep the tongue out of the way, make and maintain an open airway. So sounds that may indicate a partial airway obstruction. Again, snoring respirations. Rough snoring type sound on inspiration and or expiration. I'm sure everybody in here knows what snoring sounds like. Gurgling. Again, anytime you hear gurgling, you see gurgling on a test, gurgling indicates fluid in the upper airway. And again, gurgling is an immediate indication for suctioning the airway. Crowing sounds is a sound like a cawing crow on inspiration. Again, that tends to indicate swelling around that larynx. Strider, same thing, just a different sound. Harsh, high-pitched sound on inspiration, and again, tends to indicate swelling or foreign body airway around that larynx. Again, gargling, again, in order for us, that's immediate indication to suction. So suction the airway, also positioning the patient or log rolling the patient on their side is going to help clear that airway as well. Crowing and strider. Again, those are those high-pitched inspiratory sounds indicate swelling or muscle spasms of the airway. 
The problem with strider or crowing is that our OPAs, our NPAs, our head tilt chin lifts, and our jaw thrusts probably ain't going to do anything to fix uh, strider or crowing. Again, it's because something is going on internally through swelling spasms. And we do not want to insert anything into the airway of a pediatric patient with crowing or strider. We don't even want to try to look or visualize the patient's mouth with like a tongue depressor. Uh, kiddos are more prone to getting a condition known as epiglottitis, which is an inflammation of the epiglottis. And by inserting something into the mouth or airway, it can cause spasms and cause that airway to totally slam shut. So any strider crowing, drooling, fever of a small kiddo where we suspect a possibility of epiglottitis, do not insert anything into their mouth. Assess breathing. So again, first step is that ABC. Of the ABCs is airway. Once we know that airway is now taken care of, it's clear, it's open, it's patent, now we're going to move on and we're going to assess the patient's breathing. We're going to determine whether the breathing is adequate or inadequate. So First thing we want to check is, hey, is this patient breathing at all, or is the patient completely apneic, not breathing? So that's the first determination. They're not breathing. Obviously, we instantly bag them. If they are breathing, now we need to determine, okay, they're breathing, but are they breathing adequately on their own, or do we need to help with that breathing? Determine the need for early oxygen therapy for adequate breathing. Part of our ABCs, I'm going to lump oxygenation with breathing. So again, patient's breathing. Now we assess to see if they're breathing adequately on their own. Patient is breathing adequately on their own. Now we need to determine, do they need supplemental O2? And again, if the patient is not breathing adequately on their own or is not breathing at all, we immediately start bagging the patient with the BVM, positive pressure ventilations with the BVM. And again, if we're bagging a patient, the BVM should be hooked up to O2. One exception, newly born kids. And again, the two things that we look at to determine if a patient is breathing adequately on their own or not is rate and tidal volume. Both rate and tidal volume have to be adequate in order for a patient to be breathing adequately on their own. So again, inadequate breathing, inadequate rate or inadequate tidal volume. Adequate breathing is an adequate rate and adequate tidal volume. Says rate, quality of breathing, things that we're looking for, again, inadequate tidal volume. Any abnormal respiratory rates. This includes things like bradyapnea, slower breathing rate tachypnea, or rapid breathing rate. Again, so airway's clear, now we're assessing breathing. Look, listen, feel, whatever we need to do. If breathing is adequate, now we consider the need for oxygenation on the patient. If the breathing is not adequate or they're apneic, we immediately begin positive pressure ventilations with a BVM. Other things we're looking for while we're checking breathing, just any indications of trouble breathing. Are they having those retractions, accessory muscle use, or nasal flaring, indicating that they're working hard to breathe? 
tracheal tugging, where that trachea is actually moving with breaths. Pale, cool, clammy skin, diaphoretic skin. Cyanosis, the bluish-grayish color to the fingers, the eyes, the lips, around the mouth. Pulse oximetry less than 94%. Asymmetrical chest wall movement, where one side's moving okay, the other side's not moving as well or not moving at all. We listen and feel. Look, listen and feel. Listen for air movement. Feel for escape warm humidified air against your cheek as we're down there assessing the patient's airway. If they're having absent or inadequate breathing, absent of breathing, they're not breathing, they're apneic, we're not going to see any chest wall movement. We're not going to feel any air moving in and out of their mouth and nose. If they are breathing again, then we assess for are they breathing effectively, insufficient rate, tidal volume, oxygenation, other signs of respiratory distress. Adequate breathing, chest rises and falls normally. You hear or feel good air coming in and out of their nose and mouth. Respiratory rate's good. No evidence of serious respiratory distress. Then we can assume the patient's breathing adequately on their own. So again, after we assure or we assess and we know the patient is breathing adequately on their own, if the patient's breathing adequately on their own, we're not going to bag them with the BVM. They're breathing fine, no point of us bagging them. But after we know they're breathing adequately on their own, now we need to assess, <clears throat> do they need supplemental O2, or can they get by on room air? Some things that we're going to keep an eye out for. Hypoxia, any indications of hypoxia or hypoxemia? Uh, Ethan, what's the difference between hypoxia and hypoxemia? Hypox, um, hypoxemia, that's the... It's when the blood pressure was underneath 90. No, you're thinking of hypovolemia or hypotension. Oh. So hypoxia is low oxygen in the tissue. Hypoxemia is low oxygen in the arterial blood. So again, okay. you're be on the lookout for those items, things like cyanosis, low two sets. Is there any indications that the patient is in shock? Diaphoretic skin, rapid heart rate, um, no distal pulses, so forth. Again, if the patient's showing signs of poor perfusion or shock, we don't care about O2 sets. They're going to get placed on high flow O2. Any indications of heart failure or any indications that the patient is having respiratory distress or a complaint of trouble breathing, they're going to get placed on oxygen, regardless of O2 sets. So again, if the patient is having dyspnea, respiratory distress, apply oxygen. Regardless of what the O2 sat shows, they're still going to get placed on oxygen. If the patient suffered from significant trauma or we suspect shock, regardless of the cause of the shock, they need to get placed on oxygen as well. Major trauma, significant mechanism of injury, just go ahead and throw them on O2. All other conditions, or most of the time, 
for medicals anyway, we want to keep O2 sats above 94%. And again, never withhold oxygen from a patient that we feel would benefit from oxygen therapy simply because we're getting a decent reading on the O2 sat. Again, your judgment. So we've done the A, we've done the B, part of the B is oxygenation, we've done that as well. Now we're going to move on to assessing circulation, the C. Assessment of circulation during the primary assessment should occur in this sequence. So we approach a patient, now we're going to assess airway, breathing, we're also assessing circulation. First thing we want to know, does the patient have a pulse? Again, if they're conscious and talking to us, do they have a pulse? Yeah. If they're breathing, do they have a pulse? Yes. If In order to breathe, you have to have a pulse. At the same time, we're also looking for any indications of major bleeding. We see external, major external bleeding. We can take immediate action to control it, put direct pressure on. We're also, during circulation, assessing skin color, temperature, and condition. And cap refill. Again, especially important for smaller kiddos. We definitely check cap refill. So again, assess pulse. If there's no radial pulse, go and move to palpate your carotid pulse. Again, you will lose you will lose radial pulses before you lose a carotid pulse. If the patient is pulseless or is unresponsive, has no breathing, no uh, or no normal breathing. They're in cardiac arrest. We start with chest compressions, then airway breathing, and apply the AED as soon as possible. Again, we follow American Heart Association guidelines. For kiddo, kiddos less than the age of one, infants, we're going to check a brachial pulse. So when you're assessing pulses, we're quickly going to determine, again, the most important thing we're trying to determine by assessing that pulse is, hey, is there one there or not? So we want to make sure that the pulse is present. We also want to try to count it. Now, we don't have to get spot on. This isn't technically our first set of vital signs, but we're going to estimate roughly what that heart rate is. Is it really slow? Does it feel pretty normal? Or is it really fast? We're also determining strength and regularity. And oftentimes, again, that Strength, anyway, is going to correspond to blood pressure. If it's extremely weak, it's telling us, hey, the blood pressure is probably dropping. If it's extremely strong, it tells us we have a high blood pressure, more than likely. But we also want to feel for regularity, make sure that it is regular. And again, we're going to identify major bleeding as well. We can take immediate steps to control major external bleeding. So if you notice large pools of blood or blood-soaked clothing, Immediately expose that area looking for the source of that bleeding. If we assess, we see bleeding, if we notice that the blood is bright red in color and it is spurting, that's arterial bleed. That means an artery has ruptured. And every time that pulse, the heart beats, blood is spurting out. If it is darker red in color, but it is steady and flowing, typically rapidly, that's just telling us it's a venous, a vein got ruptured. And if it's, and again, if it's arterial or venous bleeding and it's heavy, immediately stop major bleeding. And we'll talk how we talk about how we do that once we get into uh, trauma. 
So again, during our primary assessment, we noticed that we have blood-soaked clothing. We're immediately going to expose that area. Look at it. If it's major bleeding, we take immediate action to control it. And to me, that's not life-threatening bleeding. So I probably wouldn't have even addressed that initially. But it's what the picture, what we got. So again, we notice that it's bleeding. If we consider it major bleeding, we're going to take steps to control it. Direct pressure with a four by four. Again, during this, we're also assessing skin condition and perfusion. While we're feeling for that pulse, either on the wrist or even on the neck, we can be assessing the skin condition at the same time. You can feel the skin through those gloves. So we should know, is it cold? Is it hot to the touch? Is it warm to the touch? Does it appear diaphoretic? And capillary refill as well. So some skin signs that we can use to give us an indication of what might be going on. And again, the mucosa membrane inside the mouth, oftentimes we can see these better there and we'll see those there first before we see it throughout the body. So pale or mottled skin, that indicates that there's decreased perfusion, maybe an indication of shock. Cyanotic, again, decrease in oxygenation. Tissues aren't getting enough oxygen, so they're turning blue. Automatic, we see cyanosis, patient needs oxygen. Anytime we see red or flush skin, that's telling us hey, something in the body's going on and their blood vessels are dilating. Yellowing of the skin, again, that indicates jaundice. It's telling us that the liver is malfunctioning. Temp, hot skin may indicate fever or it may be like a heat-related heat exposure. Skin's cool to the touch, maybe cold-related emergency. Also, shock, their skin gets cool to the touch as well. Their skin is extremely cold, that may be frostbite or severe hypothermia in the patient. Cool and clammy skin, again, that tends to indicate epinephrine release in the body. So cool, clammy skin, epinephrine is getting released, so that may be an indication of shock, nervousness, or fright. And again, normal skin temperature should be warm. That's how we describe it. Skin was warm to the touch. Condition, dry. If it's overly dry, again, say we're out in 110 degree weather and our patient's skin is dry to the touch. We would expect a patient to be sweating in that hot of a temperature. So if it's abnormally dry, that can indicate dehydration, heat stroke, spinal shock, which we'll talk more about, or certain medical conditions or even medications that may limit or prevent sweating. Moist skin, again, may be the environment. Hey, it's 98 degrees outside, I'm going to start sweating. So you would expect my skin to be moist if I was standing outside all day. Exertion, or it could be underlying pathology, shock, medical conditions, etc. Cap refill, again, much more reliable in smaller kiddos and infants. We still check it for adults, but again, we don't put a lot of weight on it. Some problems with cap refill, it's going to be most reliable at room temperature. If it's extremely hot outside, we expect capillary refill to probably be faster than what it would be at room temperature. Same thing if it's cold, it's going to probably take longer. And again, 
do not put much weight solely on capillary refill for adult patients. It's just another clue. Does not provide an accurate determination of perfusion status, again, but taken with other indications, again, it's just kind of confirming our suspicions. So again, one thing we're always on the lookout for is shock. And again, shock is poor perfusion, hypoperfusion. Shock is a life-threatening condition. And if we suspect shock, we need to be able to recognize it. We suspect it. We need to immediately start treating that during the primary assessment. Shock receives high flow O2. So making sure we, if we recognize it, immediately throw them on oxygen. So again, moving on to the next part of our primary assessment. After we've looked at all those things, they're... Uh, general appearance, uh, primary, or whenever we first lay eyes on them. Uh, they're AVPU mnemonic. We've looked at those ABCs. After we look at all those information, get all those clues, now we're going to establish patient priorities. We identify and manage life-threatening conditions immediately. Any critical findings of the airway, breathing, oxygenation, or circulation categorizes the patient as unstable. So if we do know problems with the airway, it was occluded, that patient's automatically categorized as unstable. Same thing with breathing. They weren't breathing adequately on their own. We're having to bag them. Obviously, they're going to be unstable. And again, unstable patients are a high priority for treatment and transport. Unstable patients generally receive a rapid secondary assessment immediate transport with continued stabilization during transport. Again, priority there is we're going to continue to treat them, but we need to get them to the hospital pretty quickly. So we're going to do a lot of stuff in route. Stable patients, on the other hand, may not be as important or needed to get them to the hospital as quickly as possible. So we may spend a little bit more time on scene, doing more of our treatment on scene instead of doing it in the back of a moving ambulance on the way to the hospital. And a lot of this, too, is going to be your judgment call as well. Do I feel comfortable staying on scene, or does this patient need immediate intervention at a hospital where I need to load them up and get them there quickly? Okay, so any questions on that primary assessment? Primary assessment, ABCs. Okay, so we've talked about the primary assessment. Now we're going to move into the secondary assessment. Again, it's the secondary assessment that is going to vary sometimes, in some cases, pretty dramatically, depending on what's going on with the patient. Again, whether it's a trauma patient or a medical patient, and it gets broken down even further than that as well. So secondary assessment is performed after the primary assessment to identify any additional injuries or conditions. And the approach to the secondary assessment differs according to whether the patient has a medical problem or a trauma complaint and whether the patient has a serious or minor complaint. The components of the secondary assessment, things that we do during the secondary assessment, we're going to perform a physical exam looking at the patient's body. Vital signs, the first full set of vital signs that we obtain on a patient occurs during the secondary assessment. 
And if the patient's conscious or people know the patient, we're also going to try to obtain a history during the secondary assessment as well. And we need to tailor your assessment to the needs of the patient and the suspected condition or injury. Again, the questions we ask uh, to a medical complaint is going to differ. We're going to ask different types of questions for a patient having difficulty breathing versus a medical patient complaining of abdominal pain. So overview of the secondary assessment. The physical exam uses the techniques of inspection, palpation, and auscultation to identify signs and symptoms. And there are two approaches for the secondary assessment. Again, it's going to be dependent on what's wrong with our patient. We do the anatomical approach, which is also known as a head-to-toe assessment, where we start from the head, assess everything all the way down to their feet, inspecting relevant parts of the body. In other in indications or other instances, we may use a systemic approach where we're only inspecting areas of the body that are relevant to the patient's complaint. So major traumas, we tend to do a complete head-to-toe. Patient was ejected from a vehicle. We want to do a head-to-toe to make sure we're accounting for all of all the injuries. Compare that to little old lady that just stepped off the curb wrong and twisted her ankle and her only complaint is ankle pain. We're not going to do a complete head-to-toe on that type of patient. We're going to do a systemic approach, only looking at that, basically, in this case, that area of complaint. So again, note that the entire body is not inspected on every single patient. Again, it's very dependent on what happened to the patient. So when we're doing our physical assessment, our physical exam, what we are looking for is DCAP-BTLS. Again, there we go, another acronym. DCAP-BTLS is the most beneficial for trauma patients, but we're also looking for anything in DCAP-BTLS for medical patients as well. So what does DCAP-BTLS stand for? The D stands for any type of deformities. The C stands for contusions. Anybody know what a contusion is? Fancy medical word for bruise. We're looking for bruising. Abrasions are where the skin is getting rubbed off. Uh, a carpet burn, for example, is an example of an abrasion. P is penetrations, anything that's penetrating the body. The B is we're looking for burns. T is tenderness. Is it, is it an area tender when we touch it and palpate it? L are lacerations. Lacerations is a cut. And the S is swelling. So again, while we're looking through our, during our physical exam, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for DCAP-BTLS. I'm not a big fan of this acronym, mainly because during a physical exam or assessment, we're looking for anything out of the ordinary. But again, this is a very common acronym that we need to understand and know. So the anatomic approach. The secondary assessment should be conducted systematically starting at the head and moving to the feet. Again, we're not going to do a complete head to toe on every single patient. But if a 
head to toe is warranted, we're going to do it again, just like it says, head to toe. A rapid secondary assessment is performed on unstable or critical medical or trauma patients. So for major trauma victims, critical trauma victims, or trauma victims that have suffered a very significant mechanism of injury, we're going to perform what we call a rapid secondary assessment. That is a quick head-to-toe assessment. We also do head-to-toe assessments under on unresponsive medical patients if the, the cause of their unresponsiveness is not immediately known. Plate head-to-toe is normally performed on patients, again, with significant injuries, or there is a possibility of significant injuries. Again, how do we determine the possibility of significant injuries? We evaluate and look at the mechanism of injury. Again, also performed on patients, medical patients that are unconscious due to an unknown etiology. We don't know why they're unresponsive. So we're going to do a head-to-toe to try to see if we can find clues as to why they may be unresponsive. So again, we can't treat, we can't fix what we can't see. So if we're doing a complete head to toe, especially for trauma victims, we need to expose their entire bodies. So completely expose the trauma patient who has suffered a significant mechanism of injury or who has the potential for multiple injuries. So we're cutting clothing off major trauma victims. Again, all their clothing, who may leave underwear, but we're removing shirts and pants. So again, head-to-toe assessment, starting with the head, working our way down. We're going to inspect the head and scalp for any DCAP BTLS. So we're going to look, and then we're also going to palpate. We're going to feel the top of the skull with our gloved hands as well, especially for patients that have dark or long and thick hair that we, they may have bleeding that we just can't see because their hair is masking it. So after we palpate the skull, the scalp, after we're done, we need to look at our gloves real quick to see if we see any blood on our gloves. If we see bleeding on our gloves, we may need to go back and do a more detailed assessment. If we don't feel anything abnormal, we look at our gloves, we don't see any blood, just keep right on moving with our assessment. Again, working our way down. So we've done the, the scalp, forehead. Now we're going to look in the eyes, check pupillary status. We're going to look inside the ears, the nose, and the mouth as well. So again, inspect the head for signs of trauma. Carefully palpate the skull for any abnormalities. If we're feeling that skull and all of a sudden we feel a deep sunken in portion, that's indication of a depressed skull fra fracture. Don't keep pressing on the depressed segment because all we're doing is pushing bone fragments on, into the brain. So feel, we feel a depressed segment, note it, don't touch it again, keep right on going. Again, we're looking in the ears. Note any leakage of blood or fluid from the ears. Maybe a clear fluid. If it's clear fluid, that's telling us, hey, there's cerebral spinal fluid leaking from the ears. The only way you get CSF from the ears is if patient has a skull fracture somewhere. Bleeding in the ears as well. We also want to look behind the ears for any injuries. More importantly, what we're looking for is discolorization or bruising behind the ears as well. 
Bruising behind the ears, we refer to that as battle signs. That's an indication if we see bruising behind the ears, again, of a skull fracture. Inspect and palpate the face. Note anything abnormal in the face, burn, swelling as well. We're going to check our pupillary status, looking at the eyes for any deformities, injuries, also checking for the responsiveness of the pupils. If the patient's conscious, again, we're not going to check this if it's a major trauma, but if we have the time it's indicated, we can have our patient follow our finger with their eyes, checking their peripheral vision, checking their eye tracking, see if their eyes are follow, able to follow, looking for any jerky eye movements, which is known as a nystagmus, um, in their eyes as well. It may indicate head injury. It also indicates that they're drinking. That's what PD checks for you if they're doing field sobriety tests. When they're following your finger, one thing they're checking for is that eye bouncing when it gets to the corner of their eye, their peripheral vision. Check the conjunctiva, the lining of the eyelids, pulling down the lower eyelid. Again, things like pale skin, uh, et cetera, you'll tend to see that in a conjunctiva before we see it through the rest of the body, cyanosis. Check the nose, any signs of trauma, burns, bleeding, leaking of fluids. Check the mouth, note the color of the mucous membranes, smell of the breath for any unusual odors, may be able to smell alcohol. Diabetic patients where their blood sugar gets really high, some of those patients can have what is referred to as a sweet, fruity odor on their breath as well, which may indicate that they have hyperglycemia. Moving down, we've done the head and face. Now we're going to move on to the neck. <clears throat> Again, first thing we're looking for is any obvious indications of injury. If we note any open neck wounds, if we didn't already previously cover it because during the primary assessment due to major bleeding, we need to immediately cover open neck wounds. Other things that we're checking for, we want to look at those neck veins, see if those neck veins are flat or if they are distended. And there are several different conditions that can cause distended neck veins. None of them are good. So make sure that we're noting, looking at those neck veins. We want to check and actually feel the patient's trachea. We want to make sure that that trachea is midline in the neck. We're trying to check, make sure there's not any tracheal deviation. Tracheal deviation is the trachea is no longer midline. It's pushed off to one side or the other. And tracheal deviation, that is the telltale sign of a tension pneumothorax. And a tension pneumothorax is a immediate life-threatening condition. To make sure that trachea is midline. So again, assess the neck for JVD, jugular vein distension, tracheal deviation, again, accessory muscle use. Are they using those neck muscles to help them breathe? Or also can check for subcutaneous emphysema. Subcutaneous emphysema is where simply is where air is getting underneath the skin. That may indicate a pneumothorax, a collapsed lung that's traveled up to the neck or we actually have a slice or cut perforation in the trachea itself where air is leaking into the tissues. <clears throat> moving down, now we're moving into the chest. We're going to inspect, cover any open wounds to the chest as we find them. We're also looking at the chest, again, looking for that paradoxical chest wall movement. 
where one chest is moved, portion of the chest is moving in the opposite direction as the rest of the chest. Again, that's the telltale sign of a flail segment, which is an immediate life threat, needs to be corrected when we find it. And again, we'll get into how we treat these conditions later on. We're just kind of going through these steps right now. Also, we need to palpate the chest. We need to fill those clavicles. We need to feel that sternum. We need to run our hands down the patient's ribs, feeling for any abnormalities as well. While we're at the chest, we're going to take the time and we're going to go ahead and listen to lung sounds as well. So we're going to get out our stethoscope. We're going to listen for lung sounds. So again, inspect, palpate the entire chest. Check for chest symmetry of chest wall movement. Both sides of the chest are moving up and down with each breath. Palpate the sternum, again, the clavicles, the shoulders as well. And again, auscultate breath sounds and comparing one side to the other side. So top, top, base, base. So we listen to one side, then immediately listen to the other side. Again, we're comparing left to right. Again, normal lung sounds are expressed as being lung sounds are clear and equal bilaterally. Again, bilaterally means on one side. So we're listening for trauma victims when we're listening to lung sounds during our head to toe. The main thing we want to know is are they present and are they equal? For medical patients, now we're looking and listening more for those uh, bad lung sounds, wheezing, crackles, rails, et cetera. But again, for trauma, the main thing we want to know, hey, they're present on both sides. They sound the same on both sides. So they're clear and present bilaterally, clear and equal bilaterally, sorry. From the chest, we move on down to the abdomen. When we inspect the abdomen, again, we're looking for anything abnormal. We're also going to palpate the abdomen. We palpate all four quadrants of the abdomen. So upper right quadrant, upper left quadrant, lower left quadrant, lower right quadrant. And we're feeling for anything abnormal during palpation. And we're also checking for tenderness. Does the patient say it hurts worse when you press on my stomach? So if it's tender, that means typical tenderness means it hurts worse when we press down. In the abdomen, though, we're also checking for rebound tenderness. It's not tender when we press in on the abdomen, but when we release that pressure on the abdomen, that's when it becomes tender. That often is going to indicate things like uh, peritonitis or inflammation of the lining of the abdominal cavity. Appendicitis is probably the most common cause of rebound tenderness in the abdomen. We're also looking for distension, discolorization as well. If it, instead of being nice and soft and, or flat, it looks extremely swollen. That tends to tell us that, hey, their abdomen is filling up with blood. They're having internal bleeding. Discolorization, especially around the belly button or around the flanks where the kidneys are. Those are also indications of internal bleeding as well. As well. Cullen's sign is discolorization around the belly button. Gray-Turner's is discolorization around the kidneys, the flanks. If during our assessment of that abdomen, we're feeling that abdomen, and we all of a sudden feel a pulsating mass inside the abdomen, we feel a mass, pushing on it, and we also can feel a pulse in that mass as well. We feel that, 
let go. Immediately remove your hands from the patient's abdomen. And do not reassess or recheck. We don't want to feel that pulsating mass again. The only thing that can be causing a pulsating mass is a abdominal aortic aneurysm, meaning that the aorta is weakening in the abdominal area. And if we keep messing with it, what are we going to do with it? Probably rupture it. And if we rupture a patient's aorta, guess what? He's going to be dead before they get him. We can get him to the hospital without a doubt. They're going to bleed to death very quick. So if we ever feel that pulsating mass, definitely note it. Definitely let the hospital know about it, but stop touching it. We don't, and we're not going to touch it again. It's not one of those things that says, hey, partner, this thing feels really cool. Why don't you come feel as well? You can feel it. We note it. Stop touching it. Move on with your assessment. Check for signs of peritonitis as well. And again, peritonitis is inflammation of the peritoneum, which is the lining of the abdominal cavity. So how we can check for peritonitis, there's two different tests that we can perform. Patient has to be conscious. Traumas, we tend to not worry about peritonitis, but if we have a medical patient, we can do what's referred to as a Markle test or more probably re commonly referred to as a heel drop. So how we do this can be assessed for appendicitis and peritonitis. Again, peritonitis is inflammation of the abdominal lining or other inflammation within, within the abdominal abdomen. In order for us to do a true Markle test, the patient has to be able to stand up. They can stand up with assistance, but they have to be able to safely stand. And a positive heel drop is one that elicits pain in the patient's abdomen. And if we can't, if the patient can't stand up on their own, we can do a modified heel drop, which is just known as a heel jar exam. And we'll, there's pictures of this coming up, and we'll talk more about it. So again, we get to the abdomen, we're going to palpate all four quadrants, and we're going to do what we call deep palpation, meaning it's not just barely touching. We're actually kind of digging our fingers down into their abdomen, pressing pretty firmly. Again, we're checking for guarding. Guarding of the abdomen means tightening of the abdominal muscles. So if, they, if their abdominal muscles are tightened, we feel them contracted, now we need to determine, was this voluntary guarding or involuntary guarding? If the patient's conscious, ask them, hey, buddy, can you relax your abdominal muscles for me? If they can relax the abdominal muscles, then it's voluntary guarding. They're doing that on purpose because it eases the pain. If they can't relax their abdominal muscles or their abdominal muscles are tightened and they're unresponsive, then it's involuntary guarding. Again, tenderness, rigidity, any discolorization. Again. If we suspect peritonitis or we want to check for it, we can do the Markle test or the heel drop. All we do is have the patient stand up, have them stand up on their tippy toes, and then we want them to drop down suddenly and forcefully onto their heels. So standing up on their tiptoes, drop firmly onto their heels. Once they drop onto their heels, if that causes pain in their abdominal region, that's a positive Markle exam meaning they're, they're more likely going to have peritonitis. Now, it's not definite. We don't have lab work or imaging, but again, that's just kind of giving us an indication. Do we truly suspect appendicitis uh, or peritonitis? Again, this is the mark or the heel drop. Patient has to be able to safely stand on, up on their own. Well, what happens if they can't safely stand? We can do a modified or we're just doing the heel jar. 
where all we're doing is grabbing their ankles and we're striking the bottom of their feet. Again, the same thing. If it causes pain inside their stomach, their abdomen, when we strike the bottom of their heel, that's also a positive heel jar. Again, makes them more likely to have appendicitis peritonitis. So from the abdomen, now we keep on moving downward. Now we're in the pelvis. If we have a pelvic injury, those are always going to be critical. Your pelvis doesn't have just a whole lot of room in there. And there are major blood vessels that run through that pelvic cavity as well. So biggest concern with pelvic injuries is that that pelvis is now unstable and those bony fragments are going to rupture the inferior vena cava or the femoral arteries or even the aorta where it's branching out into the femorals. So if we know that the patient obviously has a pelvic injury, we're not even going to palpate the pelvis. If it's obvious that it's deformed or the patient is complaining of severe pelvic pain, we're not even going to palpate the pelvis. We're going to assume it's broken, keep going on with our assessment. If there's nothing obvious, the patient's unresponsive, we don't see any obvious deformities, now we're actually going to palpate it. Other things that we're looking for, while we're down there, we're going to check on the genitalia as well. For males, one thing that we're on the lookout for checking the genitalia is a priapism. A priapism is a persistent, non-sexual erection of the penis. For major traumas, if we see a priapism in a male patient, what we're concerned about is a spinal injury. And if, it's a, if a spinal injury is causing a priapism, it tends to be a very bad spinal injury, very likelihood that he's going to have permanent disability paralysis somewhere in the body. So again, priapisms are something that we need to check for. So again, if it's obviously injured or the patient's are already having a lot of uh, pelvic pain, we're not going to palpate the pelvis. Again, if they're unresponsive, we don't see anything obvious, then we are going to assess the pelvis. So how we're going to do this is what we're, we're going to perform, which is known as a pelvic rock. And we'll talk more about that later, I believe. But what we do is we're going to grab the wings, the iliac crests of the pelvis. We're going to press those inward. And at the same time, we're going to push them downward towards the patient's back as well. Everything should feel tight. One side shouldn't be freely moving compared to the other side. If everything feels nice and tight, not much movement. Now we know the pelvis is intact. Again, if one side is very loose, loose freely, that's telling us that that side of the pelvis is likely going to be fractured. So after we get the pelvis, now we're going to move on and assess the lower extremities of the legs. Anytime we're assessing extremities, proper technique is we should assess one extremity at a time. So we're going to do one leg, then come up and assess the other leg. As we're assessing the lower extremities, we're looking for any signs of injury or edema. Depending on the type of patient, once we get to the calves, we also need to check for any indications of the possibility of a deep vein thrombosis or a blood clot in their legs. So indications of a DVT is calf tenderness, hurts on their calf, swelling, redness to the area over the calf, and also that area tends to feel hotter to the touch than the rest of the leg as well. So work our way down once we get to the top of the feet. 
we're going to check for pulses, motor function, and uh, sensation, PMS, pulse, motor function, sensation. So where we check for a pulse at on the lower extremities, again, is going to be that pedal pulse right on top of the foot. Motor function, if they're conscious, can you wiggle your toes for me? Sensation, hey, which toe am I touching on your foot? So again, we're going to run our hands down the lower extremities. Again, for any indications of injury or bleeding, deformity, swelling, discolorization, again, decap UTLS. If it's a medical patient, we can check for pain in the calf. Again, that may indicate a DVT during dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. So we're just having them rock their toes, their feet up, and then back down. Does the patient have any calf pain while doing that? Again, distal pulses, where we check distal pulses in the lower extremities is the pedal pulse, noting skin color, temperature, or condition as well. Depending on situations, we want to check sensation and motor function a little bit deeper than just, hey, can you wiggle your toes? We may check for equal strength in their, their lower extremities, put their hands up like that, and then have the patient press down on both their hands at the same time like they're pressing on a gas pedal. And you can check, again, responsiveness, sensation, pinch a toe, touch a toe, which toe am I touching? The last thing that we assess on the anterior side anyway is the upper extremities. It's a head to toe, but we do the arms last. The reason being is it's very unlikely that we're going to have a life-threatening injury to an upper extremity unless an amputation with major bleeding, which we should have already caught that. Femur fractures, pelvic fractures, and so forth, those can be life-threatening injuries. We see those on the lower extremities. Again, there's less likely, it's going to be less than likely a life-threatening injury to the upper extremity, so we check those last. Again, it's one extremity at the time, one arm at the time. Again, we're looking for any obvious injuries, DCAP BTLS, and again, we're going to check PMS of the hands as well. If it's a medical patient and we suspect the possibility of a stroke, we can do a stroke assessment checking for arm drift. So again, one extremity at a time. Radial pulse is where we check for distal pulses in the upper extremities. Again, noting skin color, temperature, and condition as well. We can check grip strengths. Uh, note the quality of the strength, sensory function by having them touch a finger. Which finger am I touching? See if they can move their fingers easily. Again, if we suspect a stroke, and we'll talk much more about strokes later, we can perform a stroke assessment. Part of that stroke assessment is going to be arm drift. All we do is have the patient hold their hands out in front of them, palms up, and have them close their eyes. If they are having a stroke, or a positive arm drift is one side will stay the same, the other side will kind of fall, fall down and pronate and rotate at the same time as well. And again, we'll talk more about stroke assessments later on. After we got the anterior body, now we also need to assess the patient's back. So we're going to inspect and palpate the area. If it's a trauma, we're going to log row them maintaining C-spine while we assess their back. We're going to include the thorax, the chest, back of the chest, the lumbar area, the buttocks, and the back of the lower extremities as well, if we could not do that earlier. 
So again, major traumas, unresponsive medicals, we tend to do a head-to-toe assessment. Another technique that we can use is just a body systems approach. So once a problem has been found, consider all of the body systems that may be affected by their complaint, by that complaint. So for us, it is going to be important to link body systems together to establish the severity of the condition. So for example, patient just twisted their ankle. The only body system we're checking is the musculoskeletal system, and we're only actually checking it in that area of complaint. The abdominal pain, we're pretty much only going to be assessing the abdomen. If a patient's having chest pain, we're going to be assessing the chest, looking at the cardiovascular system, but we also need to be checking the respiratory system as well, because oftentimes they can have a combination of the two. And we also need to check pedal edema anytime we're looking or have a patient complaining of chest pain, because heart failure can cause fluid to, to to back up and to swell, swelling in the ankles as well. So the respiratory system, if we are needing to assess the respiratory system, chest shape, symmetry, accessory muscle use, auscultation of lung sound. If we're assessing the cardiovascular system, checking pulses, peripheral versus central pulses, blood pressure, Neurological system, we need to assess mental status. Again, using that AFPU mnemonic, we also need to check orientation. A person that is oriented to person, place, time, and event, those are the four questions that we ask for orientation, they are known to be AAO times four, and that is normal. If they're confused to person, place, time, and event, then they're AAO times one, times two, times three, whatever the case may be, but we need to document where that deficiency was. Patient was alert to person, time, and event, but was disoriented to place. Make sense? Person, place, time, event. Also need to document posture and motor activity. Is the patient able to sit up straight or are they hunched over and leaning to one side? Do they have good motor activity in all four extremities? Is it symmetrical as well? And going back to per orientation to person, place, time, and event, when I ask about time, one thing I never ask my patients is what is the date? Because right now I can't tell you what the date is without looking at my watch. I know we're in June. So instead of asking date, what I tend to like to ask is, again, what month are we in? What day of the week is it, et cetera? But I do not ask specifically for dates because, again, I can't tell you what the date is without looking at a calendar. Also checking things like facial expressions, drooping facial expressions where one side of the face is drooping, symmetry, anger, pain, depression, etc. We need to check their speech. Do we notice slurred speech, slurred speech, facial drooping, arm drift are the three components that we check for to determine if, if we suspect a patient is having a stroke. Is it normal speech? Is it garbled speech, meaning we can't understand what the hell they're saying? Check their mood, thoughts, perceptions. Is this normal for the patient versus abnormal? Check their memory, long-term versus short-term memory. And if we're having deficiencies, is this deficiency in their long-term or short-term memory normal or abnormal for the patient? 
So again, checking face symmetry or checking for facial drooping. We ask the patient to smile and show us their teeth, and we're checking to make sure that their smile and their face is moving symmetrically on both sides. In this case, I do not note any facial drooping. Musculoskeletal system, major body components, the pelvis, lower extremities, upper extremities. We're also checking perfusion, posterior body as well. So another component of the secondary assessment, again, is assessing vital signs. The first time that we get our first full set of vital signs will be during our secondary assessment. So again, all the things that we've already talked about, breathing, pulse, skin, cap refill, blood pressure, pupils, O2 sats as well. Again, we're also getting history from our patients during our secondary assessment as well. So again, we're going to use our sample mnemonic, signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, past medical history, last oral intake, and events leading to the cause. For medical patients especially, we also dive into OPQRST, especially if the complaint is of pain, onset, provocation, palliation, anything you do to make it better or worse. Quality, can you describe that pain for me? What does that pain feel like? Radiation, uh, on, does that pain stay in one spot or does it move around? Severity on a scale from one to 10, 10 being the worst pain you ever felt in your entire life. How would you rate that pain? And time, how long ago did the signs and symptoms start? And again, especially with OPQRST, you need to know how to ask those questions. You cannot ask the patient, what's the quality of your pain? They're gonna have no idea what, you talk, what you're talking about. So especially for testing, not the first test, the second test, there's gonna be questions like, for example, you ask the patient to describe their pain for you. What does their pain feel like? Using the OPQRST mnemonic, that would be describing which of the following. Again, describing their pain is quality of pain. Makes sense, kind of what I'm needing you to know. You need to know how to ask these questions to a patient in real life. Okay, so those are the general components of a secondary assessment. Now we're going to break it down and talk about how we're going to do a secondary assessment for specific types of patients. So now we're going to start with secondary assessment for our trauma victims. So the trauma patient, the general sequences are still going to be the same. We're going to do a physical exam. We're going to take vital signs. We're going to obtain a history from our patients. Continuation of spinal precautions as indicated. Again, we've talked about we're going to have somebody hold C-spine for trauma victims during that primary assessment. We're going to have to continue. Whoever's holding C-spine is going to continue to hold C-spine throughout our secondary assessment as well. Reevaluate the mechanism of injury as a basis for determining the secondary assessment approach. So again, there's two ways we're going to do a secondary assessment for trauma victims. We're going to base the decision on what type of secondary assessment. Let me back that up, make it easier for you. We're either going to do a complete head-to-toe or we're not going to do a complete head-to-toe assessment on our trauma victims. There's two things that we look at to determine whether we do a complete head-to-toe or not. Obviously, critically injured patient. The other thing is we're going to look at that mechanism of injury. 
if we think it's a pretty significant mechanism of injury, we're going to go ahead and do a complete head to toe, regardless of how well off the patient looks like they're doing. So key points on critically injured trauma patients or those patients that have a significant mechanism of injury. So what we're saying here is these patients do need a complete head to toe, either because they're obviously critically injured or, again, because it was what we classify as a significant mechanism of injury. So these are, well, bad off patients. They need rapid transport. And there's a principle with traumas and reasons why we do this. So with major traumas, critically injured, significant mechanism of injury, we will not get a blood pressure on scene. Blood pressures, full set of vital signs are going to be taken in route to the hospital. And the reason being is scene times are critical for traumas. We'll talk more about this, the golden period, the platinum 10, once we get into the trauma section. But for major trauma, scene time should be limited to 10 minutes or less unless extenuating circumstances such as entrapment. We have multiple patients for, again, extrication, et cetera, that's going to delay our scene time. Major traumas, critically injured, significant mechanism of injury, we have 10 minutes or less on scene. You know how fast 10 minutes fly by when our adrenaline's pumping? It's very easy for us to accidentally go over 10 minutes. So it's something that we definitely have to keep our eye on. And the goal for major traumas is to manage immediate life threats on scene. Everything else is going to be done in route to the appropriate facility. The reason being is with major traumas, their definitive care, meaning the care that most major traumas need in order to survive the incident is going to be surgical intervention. We obviously can't do that on the scene. So the quicker we can get them into surgery, the better statistically as well, been proven, the better outcomes that patient has. So that's where our emphasis is. We're going to treat whatever's going to kill them quickly on scene. Other than that, we're going to do it en route to the hospital. If we're just a BLS truck, it's just me or just two basics on that truck, and we think we're going to need a paramedic or we're going to need an advanced person. We're going to have them request them to meet us. However, when we're ready to transport, we're not going to wait around on scene for a paramedic or an advanced personnel to show up. We're going to start transporting. That paramedic, that advanced person, ALS, can meet us en route to the hospital. So if we're dealing with non-critically injured trauma or patients that don't have a significant mechanism of injury, Again, I just slipped out of my chair drunk one night. I slip out of my chair, fall on the ground, and I break my arm. That's the only complaint I have is my arm hurts. Do I need to do a complete head-to-toe on myself, or do y'all need to do a complete head-to-toe on me? No, I'm not worried about other injuries. It's an isolated injury. So we're not going to have to do what we call a rapid secondary assessment, which is a complete head-to-toe. Instead, we're going to do what we refer to as a modified secondary assessment, where we're only focusing in on that area of complaint. So all we're really going to look at is my arm. If it's a non-critically injured patient or it wasn't a very significant mechanism of injury, we're not so much worried about scene time. 
We're not held to that 10 minutes or less standard. We have up to 20 minutes now. But we just need to be aware that even though it may not look like a very bad injury, the mechanism of injury may not look too, too severe, things can change pretty rapidly. So be on watch out for changes in patient's condition. And as y'all probably know, not all situations are black and white. Some things are kind of in that gray area. We may not know whether this patient's really serious off or whether I would consider that a significant mechanism of injury or not, it's kind of in that gray area, I don't really know. If that's the case, if there's any doubt what we should do, always err on the side of caution, treat it like a major or critically injured patient, complete head to toe, 10 minutes on scene or less, load, begin transport. Again, steps for a secondary assessment for a trauma victim. Again, this is for no significant mechanism of injury, not critically injured, pretty straightforward. This is going to be for our critically injured. And again, it's what the chapter is talking about. So we'll skip over that, won't read through it. So again, the first thing we're going to want to do is we're going to want to reevaluate or at least reconsider that mechanism of injury. The mechanism of injury is directly related to the potential for critical injuries. So the more significant or severe that mechanism of injury is, the greater or the higher the likelihood that that patient is going to be critically injured. So again, if it looks like a bad wreck, significant mechanism of injury, we're going to treat it like it's a bad wreck and the patient is likely going to be critically injured. Your, our emergency care for trauma victims is frequently based on findings during that scene size up, looking at that mechanism of injury, which is giving us that high index of suspicion. So these are what we consider significant mechanisms of injury. So if we see a patient that has suffered one of these type of injuries, that's automatically enough justification for us to do a complete head to toe to worry about 10 minutes or less on scene, rapid transport to the hospital. And most of these are going to be pretty damn obvious. Anybody that was ejected from a vehicle, that's significant mechanism of injury, very high likelihood that they're critically injured. So again, 10 minutes on scene or less, rapid transport, quick head to toe. Again, we've already mentioned, talked about a little bit earlier, if there's death of a person in the same vehicle that the patient, our patient was in. For falls, for an adult patient, a fall of greater than 20 feet is considered a critical fall. Rollovers of a patient's vehicle. Now that's not, I mean, I've seen patients survive a rollover, walk away without a scratch, but again, rollovers tend to be Pretty significant, especially if the patient's under strain. High-speed vehicle collisions, vehicles that were traveling at highway speeds. Again, 12 inches of intrusion into a passenger compartment or 18 inches of deformity on any side of the vehicle. Either a pedestrian or a bicyclist that was struck by the vehicle. And again, we're talking about the pedestrian or the person on the bicycle, the person in the car is going to be fine. Motorcycle crash that are happened or occurred greater than 20 miles per hour with the rider leaving the motorcycle. And it doesn't really say ejected. 
So laying the vehicle down, if they were going more than 20 miles an hour, still is going to be a significant mechanism of injury. Any type of injury to the patient that causes altered mental status, confusion, unresponsiveness, verbal stimulus, painful stimulus, anywhere in between, if it alters their mental status, it's automatically considered a critical injury. Again, rollovers, penetrating injuries to the head, neck, torso, or to extremities proximal of the elbow or proximal to the knee. So again, this technically is considered a significant mechanism of injury. To me, it doesn't look too bad off. It only looks like they rolled it one time on the roof. It doesn't look like they rolled multiple times. But again, the problem with rollovers is the injury patterns are just so unpredictable because every time it rolls, there's multiple impacts occurring. Blast injuries from an explosion. Again, somebody that was involved in an explosion is automatically considered a critical MLI. Seatbelt injuries, now that may not be enough justification for 10 minutes on scene or less rapid transport, but we just need to be aware that seatbelts can cause very specific injury patterns in patients. Collisions, especially at high rates of speed where steering wheel, uh, sorry, seatbelts were not worn even if the airbags were deployed. Airbags are designed to work with seatbelts. If the airbag deployed and the patient wasn't wearing a seatbelt, they're not going to be as nearly as effective. There is deformity to the steering wheel. That's telling us that the patient's body struck the steering wheel extremely hard. Or if there's going to be a prolonged extrication, if they're having to use the jaws of life to cut the victim out, that's telling us there was significant forces that mangled that car up so bad that we couldn't get him out without having to cut him out. So with infants and kiddos, our mechanism of injury is going to be a little bit different. Main, the main one is going to be falls. Falls over 10 feet. So again, remember, adult falls over 20 feet are considered critical. For kiddos, it's over 10 feet or two to three times the height of their child. So think about it. An infant, especially dropping an infant in my arms when I'm standing, that's going to be considered a critical fall for that infant because it's two or three times higher than their, the height of the child. Bicycle collisions with NBC, just like with an adult. Car peds where the pedestrian is struck by a vehicle. Unrestrained child in a vehicle collision. And again, all the other mechanisms of injury for an adult is also going to uh, apply to a kiddo as well. So big key point, we need to evaluate and look at that mechanism of injury. So we need to look at the vehicles. We need to estimate how bad the damage is. And oftentimes that does have to be documented. Crew noted damage to the front of the patient's vehicle, noted approximately 12 inches of uh, deformity to the front of the vehicle. Uh, motorcycle, ATV, bicycle, et cetera. If it was a fall, estimate the height of that fall. What did they land? Was it grass, concrete, water, etc.? Gunshot wounds. Again, we try to determine the caliber of the distance of the gunshot wound. Now, we're not forensic pathologists, etc. We can't look at a bullet wound and say, yep, that looks like about a nine millimeter. We can't do that. But if the gun is still on scene, law enforcement secured the, the gun. We can ask law enforcement, hey, what type of gun was on scene? Or what type of shell case? Nine millimeter, 40 cal, etc. 
Again, same thing with distance. We can't really estimate that by looking at wounds. We don't have the training for that, but we can ask if somebody witnessed it. Well, how far was the shooter away from the person in your estimation? And again, just we got to be careful of documenting that. We need to document bystander on scene, estimated. Okay, the shooter was standing approximately 20 feet when the victim was shot. Just make sure we're not make we're not claiming that as fact. We are stating what somebody else told us. If we don't know the caliber, but somebody did witness the shooting, we can at least know if it was a handgun versus a rifle versus a shotgun by having witnesses, asking witnesses. If it was a stabbing with a knife, we need to try to determine the size and length of the knife, the blade. So again, if the knife is still on scene, look at the knife, estimate the length of the blade of that knife as well. So rapid secondary assessment for trauma patients with a significant mechanism of injury are those that are unstable. So again, we've talked about different mechanisms of injuries that we considered major. If that's the case, if we if we run on a patient that suffered that ejection, that major rollover, the shootings, the stabbings, et cetera, or we just look at the patient, obviously know it's going to be critically trauma. Now we're going to perform what is called the rapid secondary assessment. Again, these are the patients that need a complete head-to-toe scan. So rapid secondary assessments, kind of the newer terminology, it may also be referred to as a rapid trauma assessment or a rapid trauma scan. Those, the last two are kind of older terminology, but you may still hear some people refer to it that way. So that is performed on patients with severe or multiple injuries that are unstable or that have a significant mechanism of injury, or if we can't really determine the mechanism of injury, but we have a suspicion that it was a significant mechanism of injury, then we're going to do a rapid secondary assessment. And again, rapid secondary assessment is a complete head to toe. Any altered mental status from a trauma is also going to be considered unstable, meaning we're going to do a rapid secondary assessment. So again, it is a head-to-toe assessment that is swiftly conducted on a patient that has or may have serious injuries. So again, if we're, if we're doing a rapid secondary assessment on a trauma victim, we are going to assume or suspect they have a spinal injury. So we are going to have to maintain spinal precautions on these major traumas. If the patient's conscious, we're going to maintain self-restriction. If they're unresponsive and we're holding C-spine, our partner's just stuck there continuing to hold C-spine. Again, we need to consider the need for additional resources, in this case, higher certification level quickly. We need to request ALS backup as soon as we think we could possibly need them. Again, we do not wait around on scene waiting for ALS. So the sooner we can get them coming, the sooner they're going to arrive. Some trauma patients may benefit from ALS intervention at the scene or en route to the hospital. Things like IV access, giving them fluids to drive an increased blood pressure, airway management, etc. However, we should not delay transport waiting for an ALS provider to get on scene. If they're not on scene by the time we're ready to transport, we start transporting 
and have that ALS provider meet us in route to the hospital. We refer to that as an intercept. Reconsider our transport decisions. Make sure that we are going to the right appropriate hospital that can handle these major traumas. In Lubbock, we're pretty lucky. Both UMC and Covenant can handle just about any major trauma. UMC can handle burns, Covenant technically can't. So major traumas inside the city of Lubbock, we need to go to either UMC or Covenant. We do not need to go to Lubbock Heart Hospital. Look for evidence of critical injury, deterioration. Again, the goal to treat ABCs, immobilizing the spine if indicated, and then begin rapid transport. So we've already done our primary assessment during major traumas. Now we're going to do a rapid secondary assessment on scene. Then we're loading and going. And again, for major traumas, 10 minutes or less on scene. We're going to reassess mental status. Again, APU mnemonic. Make sure they are alert, oriented. And at some point, we also need to get a GCS on the patient. And the GCS stands for Glasgow Coma Scale. Every patient, regardless of medical or trauma, we always obtain GCS on patients. It's used, a GCS is used to rank a patient's level of consciousness by assigning numerical values. And the scale for GCS is three to 15. 15 being absolutely normal, three is the lowest score you can get. So a dead body is going to get a GCS score of three. Widely accepted and reported on PCRs, it's mandated in this region, state. Every patient, we need to document GCS. If during this calculation, a GCS of eight or less, that indicates severe alteration in brain function. GCS of 13 or less, an indication of limited, it would be an indication for us to spend less than 10 minutes on scene or less. Again, it's just giving them a numerical value. So if we call the hospital and say, hey, we have a GCS of eight, that alone tells them, hey, this trauma victim is pretty altered. So there's three components that we look for on a GCS. That is eye-opening, verbal response, and motor response. So the first part is our eye opening. If you look at that, that's your AFPU mnemonic right there. So we're just plugging in what we got through AFPU into this chart. So if they're alert, they get a four. If they respond to verbal commands, they get a three. They respond to painful stimulus, they get a two. If they have no response, they're unresponsive, they get a one. After we plug in AFPU, now we move into verbal response. If they're completely alert and oriented, they get a five. If they're talking to us, but they're confused, they get a four. If they're talking, but they're just using random inappropriate words, we ask them what is today and they tell us red, that's inappropriate. They're not just wrong, they're giving us an appropriate response. They get a three. If they try to talk, but we just can't understand what they're saying, it's a two. And if they can't talk, it's a one. And the last thing that we check on is motor response. If they can follow our commands, they get a six. They localize to pain, they get a five. Withdraws from pain, they get a four. If we inflict painful stimulus and they get decorticate posturing, it's a three. Decerebate posturing is a two. 
And if they don't respond to any type of pain, they get a one. So again, the highest score somebody gets a 15. All of us in here are 15s. The lowest somebody can get. So again, a dead body, my desk will get a three on a GCS score. Now, when we're dealing with pediatrics, we're going to have to adjust our GCS score because obviously a one-year-old is not going to be able to be alert, oriented, and conversing with us. So uh, the AFPU mnemonic remains the same regardless of age. Again, it changes during our best motor response. If they're under the age of one, they're already kind of starting off in the hole because uh, they, they can't follow motor response. But again, you can look through there we know the differences. Verbal response, again, where it dramatically is going to change. Again, that's going to be very dependent on age. Every, this is either going to be in your protocol book. UMCMS typically has these either posted in their ambulance or very easily accessible for you to pull it out and determine your GCS. For testing and in foreign class, I'm not going to expect any of y'all to come up with the GCS off the top of your head but you do need to know the different components that we're checking for when we're assessing a GCS. So during your rapid secondary assessment, we are identify signs and symptoms of potentially life-threatening injuries. Again, that's the purpose. We're gonna do a real quick head to toe. And what all we're really trying to do is to find and treat life-threatening conditions that we initially did not see during our primary assessment. So again, we're going to use things like inspection, that's looking, palpation, that's feeling, auscultation, that is listening with the stethoscope, just listening with our ears. We may even use smell to give us clues about what could potentially be going on with our patient. So again, while we're doing a physical exam, we're looking for DCAP BTLS. So again, we're looking for the D is deformities. There's obvious deformity to that patient's ankle. Everybody see it? Yeah. C is contusions or bruises. Patient was punched in the face and now he's got bruising to his eyes. A is abrasions. That's rubbing off the layers of skin. Again, a carpet burn is an abrasion. This is quite a bit larger and more significant than a carpet burn, but it's still an abrasion, just scraping off or rubbing off that outer layers of skin. P is punctures, penetrations. That's penetrating wound right there at the chest. B is burns. That's a partial thickness burn to that guy's hands characterized by blistering. Partial thickness more commonly referred to as second-degree burn. T is tenderness. Again, by palpating, does that area hurt worse when we touch it? L or lacerations, which are cuts. And S is swelling. And again, you can see, compared to his good hand, how much swelling that patient is having in that hand right there. So again, we're going to do a rapid secondary assessment on major traumas, traumas with significant mechanism of injury, or with obviously critical. So we're going to start with the head. 
So again, just like we talked about previously, palpating the head. Critical finding is when we're palpating and assessing the head. Anytime we have trauma that's causing an altered mental status, that's always a critical finding. Again, that automatically makes that patient unstable. When we assess their pupils, their pupils are either unequal or they're unresponsive. That oftentimes directly corresponds to brain function. So if their pupils are unequal, that's telling us, that, hey, we got a brain injury, or they're not responsive to life, probably got a brain injury. Cerebral spinal fluid, again, that CSF that is leaking from either the ears or the nose. And again, that's CSF is only found in your skull and your spinal column. So if it is leaking somewhere from your nose or ears, that's telling us that the skull is fractured. So they have a basilar skull fracture. Blood, secretions, vomit his teeth, bones, or debris in the mouth, anything that could potentially occlude that airway. So again, for the head, we're going to inspect and palpate the scalp, skull, actually feel, touch, look at your gloves, face, nose, ears, eyes, mouth, checking pupil status. Again, paying very close attention to that airway and making sure that that airway is clear. From the head, now we're moving on down to the neck. Again, the critical findings that we are looking for, and there's a picture of this coming up. One of them is jugular vein distension where the neck veins are popping out. And also tracheal deviation where the trachea is no longer, no longer midline. After we assess the neck, we can now put a C-collar on the patient if we do suspect spinal injury. Apply after checking the back of the neck, though, as well. However, if a first responder or bystanders on scene had C-collars and they went ahead and put the patient on a C-collar, once that C-collar is in place, we are not going to remove it. So if it was put on prior to our arrival, leave the C-collar in place. So again, inspect the neck, tracheal deviation, tugging, jugular vein distension, subcutaneous emphysema where air is getting underneath the skin, large lacerations, punctures to the, the neck as well. Again, that's what that JVD looks like. You can see that neck vein is sticking out big time. It's very swollen. So some jugular vein distension is normal if the patient's laying completely flat on their back just based on gravity. But if their head is elevated slightly less than 45 degree angle or so, those neck veins should be completely flat. But again, this one, even laying flat, you notice how large that neck vein is. Palpate both the anterior and posterior portion of the back. If we note feeling on the back of the neck, we feel like muscle spasms, that may indicate injury to the cervical spine. Again, we apply a C color after we inspect the neck, and we'll get more into that into the trauma section. From the neck, move on down to the chest. Critical findings any open or penetrating wound to the chest is always critical and needs to be corrected immediately. Paradoxical chest wall movement again, where one section is moving the opposite direction of the rest of the chest, indication of a left segment. That's a life threatening injury, meaning as soon as we find it, we have to correct it. Absent or decreased breath sounds, not much we can do for it, but something that we definitely need to note. And we're also checking chest wall movement as well. Any indications of poor chest wall movement. 
So expose the chest, inspect and palpate for open wounds, flail segments, muscle retractions, and asymmetrical chest movement. And again, during a rapid secondary assessment for major traumas, the only thing that we are stopping and fixing at this time are potentially life-threatening injuries. So if it's not life-threatening, if it's minor, we're not going to correct it at this time. We're going to continue on, load the patient, transport, and if we have time, we can go back and correct non-life-threatening injuries and in route to the hospital. Again, lung sounds, four-point auscultation. All we're really trying to determine for major trauma is that lung sounds are there and they're equal on both sides. Abdomen, critical findings during an Palpating the abdomen is severe abdominal pain, tenderness upon palpation, discolorization of the abdomen, rigidity, distension, or if the patient has an abdominal evisceration where abdominal organs are actually sticking out through the skin. So again, palpate all four quadrants. From there, we move on to the pelvis. Again, if the patient is complaining of pain to the pelvis without us even touching it, we're not going to palpate it. That's automatically considered a critical finding. If we are palpating it and we note tenderness or instability on palpation, that's a critical finding. If the patient is not complaining of any pain in the pelvis, no deformities are present, then we're going to do what we call that pelvic rock. Place each hand on the iliac crest, gently compress the pelvis inward and then downward. And note any, any instability or pain. And again, a pelvic fracture is considered a life-threatening injury. So if we do suspect a pelvic fracture, we are going to have to stop and treat it before we load the patient on the truck and begin transport to the hospital. Again, on scene for major trauma is all we're doing is treating life-threatening injuries. If it's not life-threatening, we're not doing it on scene, we'll do it in round. Extremities, again, normally the lower extremities are assessed first versus the upper extremities. Again, just like with the rest of our assessment, we're checking for DCAP BTLS. Also assessing PMS, pulse, motor function, sensation. Critical findings in the lower extremities. Any major external bleeding, again, those should have already been addressed during the primary assessment, but if we missed it, make sure we catch it in the secondary assessment. Another critical finding is the possibility of a femur fracture. Femur is that upper leg, your thigh, largest, strongest bone in the body. If we suspect a femur fracture due to pain, swelling, tenderness to that area, a femur fracture is also considered a life-threatening injury, meaning if we suspect it, we have to treat it before we load and begin transport of a major trauma victim. So again, each lower extremity, one at a time, distal pulses, pedal pulse, PMS, motor and sensory function, and the same thing for the upper extremities. And the only critical finding for an upper extremity is major external bleeding. A humerus fracture is not considered a life threat. A Radius ulna fracture is not considered life-threatening. So again, let's say we have a patient critically injured. We're doing a rapid secondary assessment on it, and we note a tib-fib fracture. That's closed. For major traumas, we're not going to take the time to splint the tib-fib fracture on scene. We're going to ignore it for right now, 
finish our assessment, load the patient, begin transport. And then when we have time, we'll go back and address that tip fit fracture. Make sense? The only thing we do on scene for major traumas is life-threatening injuries. So after we do the anterior side, now we need to do the posterior side. It's fine as to be immobilized, check while log rolling the patient to put them on our transport device. So if we're going to put a backboard under them, while we log roll them and get the backboard underneath them, use that opportunity to go ahead and check their back. Critical findings, again, is going to be an open wound to the chest, posterior thorax, which heat it just the same as a penetrating wound to the chest. Open wounds, spurting or steady blood loss as well. So again, in this case, they're log rolling the patient, checking their back. If they're going to put them on a backboard, they'd be getting the backboard in position as well. So after we do our physical exam or head to toe, now we're loading the patient, getting the patient in the back of the truck, and beginning transport. Again, vital signs for major trauma should be done in route. Maybe performed in route or simultaneously during the physical exam if enough manpower allows. And again, we're going to get a full, complete set of vital signs. So, with major traumas, we start our secondary assessment on scene and we continue it after we load the patient and begin transport. If indicated, we can check the BGL, checking for blood sugar. Normal BGL for a patient is 80 to 120. Altered mental status is often the indication to go ahead and check blood sugar. And we're going to repeat bottle signs every five minutes. If we're doing a complete head to toe because of MOI, we're going to classify that patient as unstable. And again, we reassess every five. If our trauma victim is conscious, we're also going to obtain a history from the patient. So again, we're going to use our sample format. If the patient's not responsive, try to get this information from bystanders, family on scene that knows the patient. And again, just keep an eye out during our physical exam looking for clues such as medical alert bracelets, previous scars, et cetera, that may give us an indication of what type of history the patient has. Prepare the patient for transport or package the patient. And again, we do this while, while I'm doing a complete head to toe assessment on my patient. Hopefully if there's enough hands, somebody else is getting her stretcher out, getting her backboard out, whatever the case may be. Again, we need to provide spine motion restrictions if we suspect a spinal injury. And again, major trauma, we always suspect a spinal injury. So again, follow your protocols for that. Major trauma. Again, we should spend less, 10 minutes or less on scene. And again, once we get into the trauma section, we'll kind of rehash this over and over and over again uh, as well about what should be done. And we can utilize the guidelines for full triage for injured patients. That is in your book. I'm not going to sit here and read it. Major trauma, make sure we're going to the appropriate facility, level one or level two traumas. Again, table 13-1. In your or 1311, these are the indications that tell us should spend less than 10 minutes seen or less. And again, most of these are common sense. Most of these we've already covered 
as well. Problems with the ABCs that for during a trauma, 10 minutes or less on scene. Any life-threatening injury, 10 minutes or less on scene. In GCS of less than 13, seizing due to a traumatic injury. That's a bad sign. Penetrating injuries, amputations, not, not counting fingers, but anything other than a finger, or major trauma in patients that have significant medical history. So if they've had heart attacks in the past or COPD, CHF, diabetics, those patients are automatically going to be moved up one to critical. While we're doing this, again, we're providing emergency care as we're going through that head to toe. So again, on scene, the only treatment that we're providing is treating life-threatening conditions as we find them during our head to toe. In during transport, we're reassessing those life threats, making sure that our treatment is still effective. And if we have time, now we can go back and treat those non-life-threatening injuries like that tib-fib fracture. And set priorities for management of critical injuries and conditions. And again, make sure that we are obtaining a GCS. Good enough place, good place to go ahead and stop for today.